Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there, you're listening to episode 311 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today, we're going to talk about the politics of sexual pleasure with one of my wonderful colleagues, Dr. Candice Nicole Hargens. She published this research article on the last sexual encounter of black students, which was very interesting. Today, we're going to talk about why it is important to talk about pleasure when we talk about sex in ethnically marginalized communities. And we're going to talk about what does sexual pleasure mean to different people. As I mentioned, my guest is Dr. Candice Hargens. She is an award-winning associate professor in the counseling psychology program at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sexual wellness and healing racial trauma all with a love ethic. She is the founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma and the host of the How to Love a Human podcast. Her new sexual liberation podcast, Fuck the System, launches January 2023. Before we dive into the episode today, I wanted to take a moment and thank our wonderful sponsor, omgyes.com. OMGYES or OMA mygodyes.com is a website with findings from the largest ever research study into women's pleasure. When they reached out to me to be our sponsor, I was super excited because I already recommended to many of my clients. They created this resource in partnership with Kinsey Institute researchers, and they asked tens of thousands of women what made their pleasure better, solo and with partner. I'm going to tell you all about it at our outro, but for now, if you are interested, they have this fantastic offer. So if you are a clinician or you are a therapist, you get a free personal access at omgs.com forward slash doctors. The rest of you guys, don't worry. It's going to be an amazing resource for you. And we have a special discount. All you need to do is to go to omgs.com forward slash sexology and check out their collection. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Nicole Hargens. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Candice Hargans. Dr. Hargans, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. I love the paper you published on importance of pleasure and you know your focus on that paper was black women and also I think in all marginalized cultures. I'm I'm an Iranian American woman as a Middle Eastern woman also. I could see some of the parallel Yes, what you yes. were talking about and the, kind of my lived experiences. So I'm very excited to talk about it. I know one of the area of the focus for your work is racial trauma and yeah. you connect it to sexuality. So please tell us more about that. Sure. So racial trauma is the enduring experience of either cognitive, emotional, or even somatic impacts 
having been exposed to racist stressors. So it can be like from an intense racist stressor or like a series of small microaggressions that just kind of accumulate and build up. And in many ways, the landscape of sexuality for people of the global majority, people who are racially marginalized, is is impacted by racist stereotypes. So people have stereotypes about Black people and their sexualities, even Iranian people and their sexualities, right, based on ethnicity and perceived religious affiliation and skin color, hair texture, all of these pieces. And so that's the way they overlap because in the intimate space, sometimes you don't have access to intimate justice because of those racist stereotypes and So my work is all about sexual liberation and sexual pleasure for people who have experienced those types of marginalization. Such an important area to talk about, to shed a light on that. I love that you were talking about the kind of affiliation people make, even as a, the assumptions that people make yes. about being a Iranian American sex therapist. <laughs> they mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. that uh, means a different thing than versus if you're going to European sex therapist right. without having any right. information. They're going to be like, you don't know about, yeah, you don't know what I know. <laughs> right, right. And they think like my focus is maybe perhaps sex education for procreation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> not for mm-hmm. pleasure it's yes. it's interesting and of course like we have our own kind of templates around uh, making sense of the world and it's common to have those but i think in the light of the kind of like relationship and connection and repeated kind of trauma that people experience is it big t trauma or small t trauma mm-hmm. it can impact how people connect with their sexuality yes. tell us more about the you said sexual liberation what do you mean mm-hmm. by that Sexual liberation is really just the autonomy to decide with intention what works and does not work for you sexually. So sometimes people associate sexual liberation with sexuality that is thinking about having sex with a number of people, a certain amount of times, all of these all of these behavioral markers, but it's really about the mindset that you have around your sexuality and that you get to make decisions that work well for you and the people that you are consensually engaged in sex with. And so it could include choices like abstinence. It could include choices like ethical non-monogamy, and it could include anything along that spectrum as long as you are making the choice to engage consensually and with intention. And I think it's it's important to kind of like talk about pleasure as, as you were mm-hmm. mentioning, how sometimes the sex education at times is like even spill of sex therapy is focused on kind of medical aspect of yeah. kind of contraception and all, all things more medically related. But tell us why is it important, especially for marginalized community when we're talking about mm-hmm. their sexuality to talk about pleasure. Yeah. So we've got these cultural scripts that impose upon our sexual experiences. You got the scripts around like gendered scripts, sexist scripts, heterosexist scripts, racist scripts, all of these things that say sexual pleasure is only acceptable for this very narrow window of white, wealthy, slim bodied, blonde haired, blue eyed, married, heterosexual man and woman And it's really just for the man, but the woman participates. Like really narrow, tiny little sexual script of this is where pleasure exists. When people experience pleasure in any number of ways, but sometimes they feel guilt about it or they feel like they have to hide it or they're ashamed of it. So giving people permission to experience pleasure and to know that they can disrupt or remix these scripts in ways that allow them greater access to sexual pleasure is important because there are health benefits 
to sexual pleasure. So you've got stress reduction as a health benefit, better heart, <laughs> cardiovascular health, physical health, mental health. Like the fact that people don't have equitable access to the health benefits of sexual pleasure based on all of these scripts is what I'm here to describe. I think that is very important. And I'm, I'm glad that you're doing the research and you're doing the work around it. Because also it impacts younger people within that those communities. Yes. They're kind of like feeling that if I want pleasure connected to sex, then maybe there's something wrong with me. This mm -hmm. is a kind of quote unquote, what's acceptable for me yes. to expect from sex. So what is the script, yes. my script of sex? And it also show up how we're advocating for ourselves mm -hmm. in the bedroom and how normalized it is for people to accept the orgasm gap that's out yes. there. So I think that's that's all kind of related. And it's related, even as you just named that, it made me think of solo sex. So masturbation, sometimes people aren't even engaging with other folks. They're masturbating or experiencing solo sexual pleasure and then feel guilt and shame about that. Nobody's even around, like nobody's even observing. But the scripts have been so internalized that folks get afraid to enjoy themselves. Well, I know you published this very interesting research article that I referenced a few times. So tell us more about that study. Sure. So I have a, a few articles. This, this one is from a few years back, but it's still one of my faves. And it's about sexual pleasure among Black collegians. Is that the one you're thinking about? I'm talking about the one that was around the last time, last encounter, like sexual encounter. Yep. Uh-huh. Yes. Is that the one? Yes. Yes. And so we found, we interviewed 26 Black college students, we asked them about sexual pleasure and good sex and what it means to them, their best sexual experience, stuff like that. And what we found, this was one of the interesting findings, is that for people who identified as women, they hoped for pleasure, whereas people who identified as men expected pleasure in their last sexual encounter. And so many of them experienced pleasure, but their disposition entering the sexual encounter was totally different based on these gendered ideas. And you spoke about the orgasm gap. That was one component of it. But for them, sex was, orgasm was just one part of the pleasure, the options for pleasure. But the women were like, you know, I hope this is going to be good. It may or may not be. And they often gave away their autonomy for the pleasure to the male partner if they identified as heterosexual. So they were like, the pleasure depends on whether he knows what he's doing. And the men adopted this. They were like, the pleasure depends on whether I'm good enough or not, as opposed to everybody having their own agency and experiencing pleasure and being able to communicate what is pleasurable and what is not pleasurable to them. How did you define pleasure in this study? We let them define it. And that's why it, that's why it wasn't as narrow as orgasm. So it could be that they felt a eudaimonic pleasure or a hedonic pleasure and the eudaimonic pleasure more so like I felt good, satisfied being with this person. It was nice to enjoy them, whereas the hedonic pleasure might be like more the physiological sensations of pleasure that we think about. So they could define it anyway, and they usually define it more comprehensively than just an orgasm. It's interesting that kind of like the point that you mentioned around hoping to experience orgasm versus expecting to experience pleasure and orgasm, that that makes a huge difference as far as the yes. mindset and the pressure it puts on even the in a heterosexual relationship on the men to perform, mm -hmm. you have to deliver. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine the problem that comes with that mindset. Yeah, especially for 
these young men identified as black. And so there are these sexual stereotypes around black men having bigger penises and having higher sexual prowess than other men, which is not true. Like there's a spectrum of sexual prowess among all men and all people in general, but they endorsed that. And so they thought, well, it's my responsibility to provide the pleasure here, as opposed to it being something that they could experience and give. They were, they were concerned about mutual pleasure, but they thought that the mutual pleasure was their responsibility. Right. And I even see it in couples that are in like later stages of life. Mm-hmm. So I know that you studied college students, but people in mm-hmm. the 30s and 40s oh, that yeah. they try to carry the same mindset in the bedroom. And yes. that can lead to lots of disappointing encounter. And I think it's, it's, it's very helpful when we're kind of thinking about the collaborative approach and also the agency piece that my mm-hmm. pleasure is my responsibility. Yes. What, what would help women to, to do, learn that skill? I know that the uh, part mm-hmm. of it is systematic. Part of it is yeah, personal. Sure. So part of it's mm-hmm. interpersonal, but tell us more about that. I think being able to endorse this idea of pleasure worthiness, that you are worthy of pleasure and that you don't have to earn pleasure or do nice things to be deserving of pleasure, that you are inherently worthy of it. And so if you recognize that, then you can ask for it when you're not quite experiencing it. So if there's a certain position that works better for you that facilitates greater pleasure, you can invite your partner to shift into that position. And it's a practice because it does feel frightening for many young women and older women, honestly, to say, hey, this is what I want. We fear that we may hurt someone's feelings and we don't want to be the person to hurt someone's feelings. Or we fear some women fear violence because, you know, they've been in situations that have been more traumatic. And to ask for what you want would be to trigger somebody and experience violence. But sometimes we just are out of practice because we haven't been given the room to ask for what we want and to experience a yes or no. Because sometimes if you have, if you have something that you like to do and it causes, it causes you to experience great pleasure, but your partner doesn't want to do it, they still have the right to say no to that. But you get to ask because it's something that you think would be beneficial to the sexual experience. And so women practicing that, trying out the language of, this is what I would like to try. Is that okay with you? Because we need to ask for consent too. Just like, you know, I identify as heterosexual. So just like men need to ask for it. It's something that everyone of everybody and every gender should be experiencing. And I think that that might be one intervention. I think that's an important one also, kind of like practicing using your voice in a, in a kind of mm-hmm. safe context and yes. kind of see what comes out of it. Because part of it, it we're kind of sometimes we're censoring ourselves before mm-hmm. even the partner says no. And I think it yes. would be helpful to kind of like be courageous and practice that that muscle. Or even it could be outside the bedroom. I know yeah. so many women that I work with, they just don't ask for what they want outside. And I think it's a practice that the more you practice it, the better you'll get at it, the more confident you show up. And the more your sexual partner will be able to understand you and know what mm-hmm. you like. So maybe you don't have to ask the next time because they got it that time that you have. That is also a very important thing because sometimes people think about, I I, I want my partner to know what I like. Mm-hmm. But at some mm-hmm. point you have to communicate that because yes. we all are yes. 
very different. I guess the other piece that kind of is connected to it, not knowing what you like, going back to the concept of not giving yourself permission. I know many, at least it's my experience within conservative Middle Eastern community that women are not, they didn't give themselves permission to even lean into sexual pleasure. So now Mm -hmm. as an adult, they want pleasure and they just don't know what they like. How can we discover our sexual identities? Yeah, so I love the yes, no, maybe so activity. And it's really simple. You just put yes, no, maybe so on the paper. You put all the things that you know you like or that you think you're going to like on the yes column. The no is the things you've tried and they were terrible. You don't want to try them again or things you haven't tried, but you know at a gut level that's not for you. And then the maybe so is like context-based. So maybe if we're on vacation or maybe, you know, maybe after we're married or maybe if we have tried this one thing first and then that worked, you know, like it's got context around it. And so to be able to write out what you do know and have your partner do the same thing, then you can share your list with each other. And they might have something on the list that you're like, oh, that's a new thing that I would be willing to try. And so it helps expand your sexual repertoire. And also getting good comprehensive sex education can give you insight into what you might like or what you might not like and help you get clearer on that. So, you know, listening to your podcast might give folks insight into, oh, this is something I hadn't tried before or going to the sex ed or social media accounts that use positive, healthy sex ed. It might give you insight into, these are things that I didn't know I could have access to, but now I want to try them. I love that. I love yes, no, maybe less. I think it's very helpful for people to kind of like, even if they know what they like to kind of like, mm-hmm. but they're shy about presenting their own list. There are yes. like tons of that list, like similar list online. So you can use mm-hmm. that as a conversation opener to see yes. what comes out of that. Also, I think related to trauma and racial trauma, sometimes trauma shows up in our body in mm-hmm. unexpected ways during mm-hmm. sex. How can we unlearn the impact of trauma in our bodies and how how can we deal with it when it comes into intimate relationships? Mm-hmm. Having a good therapist that understands the way racial trauma works is an important place there. Thinking through meditative practices or mind-body practices, because you're right, it's not just the way you think about something, but it's the way your body in experiences or embodies like the trauma. And so yoga practices, stretching, meditation practices, mindfulness, loving kindness meditation, those are all interventions that are easy to use and free that can help you have better access to your body after experiencing racial trauma. And so just paying attention to when you're numb, if you notice that you're experiencing numbness during a sexual encounter, like you're kissing, you feel nothing, or you're starting to check out taking some deep breaths and returning to the space, finding where your hands are, your feet are, your body, like just sensing yourself again, asking your partner, communicating with your partner. Hey, I feel like I'm checking out. Can you hold me a little tighter, squeeze me this way or hold my hand or caress my face? Something that feels tender and loving can help bring you back to the moment. So there are lots of small interventions, but therapy is a really great starting place because sometimes you need to be able to talk through it. And there are somatic therapists will do massage, like massage therapy, or help you find where the trauma is placed in your body that can 
also intervene. I think those are all wonderful interventions. I think as far as therapy goes, there are different, for our listeners, different types of therapies. Some people are mostly focused on cognition. Some, some people focus on mind and body. And some people are somatic therapists. And they all have their own place. And, and, and yes. I believe for trauma treatment, the, it's, it's very helpful if there is some somatic component mm-hmm. to the work. Mm-hmm. Because as you mentioned, many, many people, they experience pain during, if there is an intercourse, during intercourse because of trauma, mm-hmm. they experience numbness or even spectator, uh, spectator yes. is very common that you, you're just not connected. So I like the idea of yeah. you saying that, like using your partner, communicating with your partner to help you to feel grounded and mm-hmm. also talking about kind of pausing and kind of grounding yourself that also mm-hmm. can be helpful. Absolutely. What's your recommendation on fantasies? Like sometimes, you know, our our mind goes to the places to neutralize shame, and that might not be the kind of like politically correct types of fantasies. Yeah. So tell us more about mm-hmm. that. I love a good fantasy, and the research supports that fantasy facilitates increased sexual pleasure. And so, recognizing that fantasies never have to be materialized in the real world. They don't have to be politically correct either. You're not causing anyone harm unless you're acting out, making decisions about the behaviors that come into your fantasy. So if there are things that feel like you would never do them in real life, but they work in your fantasy world and you want to think about them and that turns you on, I support that. I also support thinking through and being conscientious about where does this fantasy come from? What does it mean for me? Not in a judgmental way, but in a curious and compassionate way like okay, this does it for me. Where does that come from? And being curious about it. I like that. This kind of mentality of fantasies can give you, can be a source of pleasure and it's not harming Mm -hmm. anyone. And it's completely okay not to act on it. In fact, most people never act on it, but it helps them to at times even neutralize that anxiety that you feel Mm -hmm. because whenever you're feeling flooded with trauma and anxiety during kind of intimate partnership. So it's it's completely okay to use it. And I think the the problem that some people have is related to them judging themselves for having Mm -hmm. those fantasies. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, I'm a feminist, so I shouldn't be fantasizing about being ravished, you know, or (laughs) like things like that. It's like, Maybe that is something that you fantasize about and it doesn't change your political disposition. So interrogate where the fantasy comes from. Oh, I wonder where that comes from. Why do I like that? Because I'm powerful in my normal life and I want a place where I can surrender. Okay, well then your fantasy is a great place for that. Maybe even you, you know, you, you talk to your partner about your fantasies if there are things that you do want to act on and some fantasies are just for you. Mm-hmm. And I think also kind of bringing the playfulness with your partner. I know we talked about that most people, they don't have the desire to act on those fantasies. But if your partner is asking you to do something that it feels sexy and is consensual, oh. and as, as long as it's a framework of this kind of mm-hmm. encounter, it can be fun to incorporate that. Absolutely. And it feels like a sign of intimacy and trust to share fantasies with each other and to maybe try some things that you fantasize about with a partner. I like that. Like it's, it can also bring kind of deepen, as you mentioned, deepen the intimacy part and bring some novelty or changing the context. I think it can yeah. be very, very helpful for the future generations, for, for parents that they want to kind of like help their children to give themselves permission to experience pleasure, advocate for themselves about their pleasure in the bedroom. 
What are some of the recommendations you have for the parents? Mm-hmm. I talked to parents about, so I'm raising a toddler right now and I'm thinking through all of this really conscientiously, thinking about consent, like who does and does not get to touch your body. And if you notice that they're exploring their body, not shaming them, saying, well, I noticed that you noticed your genitals. This is what they, they can be used in private, but not in public because we don't want people to see them because they're yours. You know, like not shaming the behavior of masturbation or self-exploration at development developmentally appropriate levels, you add more information. This is what genitals can be used for. And we use them for, you know, your nation, but we also use them for this, you know, like that, that adding pieces, letting them ask you questions, always making the invitation to ask, do you have any more questions about that? And letting them, letting them ask what they want and doing so, like, if you don't know the information, because many of us didn't get comprehensive sex ed adults in their lives, I need to find out. Let me find out. And I'm going to bring this up with you the next time we talk so that you can get good information about it. I like sex positive families on Instagram because they have really good information about how to talk to kids at different developmental levels about sexual health. And as they age and as they become teenagers and they start to notice that they have increased sexual desire and arousal, explaining how normal that is. And that, you know, asking them, when will you know that you're ready to have sex with a partner as opposed to sex by yourself? And, you know, giving them adequate information about what it means to protect themselves, what it means to engage in consensual behaviors, all of that. I think those are all important. And it also requires a level of additional level of intentionality. If, if that's something that you haven't received from your parents or you haven't paused and reflect on these messaging that you receive. Most especially- of us have not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I have, I got zero sex education, but my mom had very, very artsy French porn collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I, that I learned a lot. Yes. That was no. many of our teacher, for better or for worse. <laughs> I didn't have the artsy version, though. <laughs> I think like, and I'm going to age myself, it was before the time of internet. <laughs> so it was uh, on videotapes. Uh-huh. We did the black VHS tapes. Yes. Right. <laughs> Tasteful yep. cameras. So I, I bet that if the children now discovering stuff, it's not as tasteful as no. what I discovered. But that's that's not comprehensive sex education. And those mm-hmm. actresses, although they were very artistic and feminine, mm-hmm. but then that's not also the portrayal of what sex looks like, right? Like no one orgasms that. But I think it's also important for people to think about, identify what are some of the areas that I need more information on. And one of my friends, she hired a sex educator to give her teens a comprehensive, like her other friends, yeah, to talk about sex and give comprehensive sex education. And I wonder though, kind of like if you haven't had, give yourself permission about SCI prevention, all other Mm -hmm. parts of, I know that kind of all other sides of the kind of sexuality, maybe you don't have the information. I know the focus for our work is more around pleasure and eroticism, Mm -hmm. but I think that also can impact the whole spectrum of sexuality. Well, tell us about how is it different in your study? Did you find a difference in kind of the impact of racial trauma on and heterosexual relationship on cisgender men versus cisgender women, at least on those studies? Mm-hmm. So for the men in particular, I think that the experience of being with being in interracial sexual encounters 
one of the participants in another study that I conducted talked about how his white woman partner said something racist to him after the sexual encounter. And he felt so like it was a complicated situation because he was still attracted to her. And he also felt like he wanted to be a gentleman and walk her home. But at the same time, he was hurt and he was afraid of like what that what that complicated mix of feelings would mean. And so having to interface with racist stereotypes about you, like I like to be with you because you're a black guy and there are stereotypes about how good black guys are, but also you're not good fathers. Like for someone to say that to you as a, you know, as like a 20 something, it's hurtful. And so them trying to figure out like how to deal with a racist stressor in the moment that they just had a pleasurable sexual encounter with someone. And that is also complicated as far as kind of like as speaking mm-hmm. of scripts, different scripts. What does it mean to be a gentleman? What what does it mean yes. to be a kind of a vocal person, an activist? And which mm-hmm. script you're using in that in that moment that can be complicated. So yeah. I, I think it's it's wonderful that you're doing all of this research. And I also know that you have a couple of podcasts. So mm-hmm. if people are interested to learn more about you, your research, your work, your podcast, what are some of the places that they can go to? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Candice Nicole. And I'm predominantly there. Sometimes I'm on Twitter and Facebook at the same handle, but usually I'm on Instagram. But more recently, I relaunched the How to Love a Human podcast, and it's on YouTube. So you can find it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, if you just want to listen. But if you want to watch the video of me and some of the guests, you can see it on YouTube. And in January, my team is launching our sexual liberation podcast. It's called F the System. And so we're going to have a good time talking about disrupting sexual scripts that do not serve us, disrespectability politics and intimate justice and what that looks like in our sexual lives so that we can all enjoy sexual liberation. Excellent. I am personally very excited about this new podcast. I think it's much needed and I think it can I can help people to understand and shed light on the areas that we're, we don't necessarily think about them yeah. if we're part of the kind of a more of a mainstream culture. So thank you so much for your time. If people are interested, they can find the link to your website and to those shows and show notes and it was lovely to have you on the show thank you so much great being here with you I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Whenever I talk to my clients, especially the parents, we talk about the importance of talking about pleasure with your children because many parents, first of all, they don't talk about sex with their kids. And also they don't talk about sexual pleasure in particular because they are scared of its ramification for their children. They're worried about their teen will have sex sooner, which that's not what research studies showed. You're just empowering them with giving them the information they would need to show up for themselves in the bedroom. Before we say goodbye, I wanted to talk a little bit about our sponsor, OMGS.com. If you haven't heard about it before, definitely check it out. This is one of those resources. Whenever I share with my clients, they fall in love. I know many of the colleagues, they don't know about it. I recommended it to people of all level of skill set. 
and everyone learned a little bit or a lot from it. One of their favorite techniques that they teach is layering, and that actually has helped many of my clients that never experienced an orgasm to get orgasmic. And for many couples, they watch it together and they learn new ways of connecting. Again, you can check them out at omgyes.com forward slash sexology for special discount. And for clinicians and therapists, for a free personal access, check omgs.com forward slash doctors. All right. I'll talk to you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.